Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, last week, uh, we started reading Paul's uh, first letter to the Thessalonian church together. That is uh, a letter of, of joy, really, and relief and thanks uh, after he heard a report there that the church was doing pretty good. Uh, so he wrote this letter to encourage them in their very uh, new, very fresh faith. And uh, he wrote it to address things that Christians wonder about all of the time, like suffering and sex and death. And when is Jesus going to come and finish his work of making everything new? So we'll pick up where we left off. I will uh, start at the beginning of chapter 2. We'll read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 together. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether for you, from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. We pray for us. Father, we just heard uh, this teaching from Jesus that if we ask uh, good things from you, you will give us good things. And so that's what we're asking, that you would use this word that we've just read and heard together that we're going to talk about for a few minutes, that you would use this in uh, whatever way your spirit sees fit to um, tend to us and care for us that you would use this word to show us the grace of your son again, that you'd use this word to change us. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was, uh, when I was a kid, if the phone rang, you answered it. <laughs> uh, there were, of course, a lot of different conditions uh, in place for phone calls at that time. Um, a lot more conditions in place than there are now. For one thing, we didn't all have phones. There was usually only one or maybe two phones in a house, and they were tethered usually, hung on the wall or tethered to the wall with wires. They were pretty stationary. 
And for another thing, more, more relevant to answering the phone, there, there was just no way of knowing who was calling unless you picked it up and said hello. <laughs> Caller ID was not a thing until after I left the house. So the only way to know if it was really important news from a family member or a friend uh, who was calling just to talk with you or uh, some goofus selling coupon books that you would never use, you know, the only, the only way you could tell the difference was just to pick up the phone and say hello. It was always this moment of mystery and anticipation. And so that's what we did. I mean, things, uh, things have changed. <laughs> things have changed. I would guess that most of us here this morning don't answer the phone if we don't recognize the number. I mean, first of all, because getting an actual phone call is unusual. It's met with wariness. It's met with suspicion. Now, there are exceptions, of course, but for the most part, I would guess that um, the majority of us here, right here, cannot remember the last time we answered the phone without first recognizing the number. And we all know why we do that. Because we have no interest in extending our car warranty that's about to expire, or whatever it is. They are always selling something. And the way we feel uh, about phone calls from numbers we don't recognize is a lot like the way that people in a big cosmopolitan seaport town like Thessalonica felt whenever they saw yet another wandering philosopher or teacher or preacher amble into town with some new message. They felt the same way. They, they greeted those guys with a bunch of side-eye. They held their noses while waiting for the inevitable pitch. This guy wants money. This guy wants fame. This guy might want something worse than those things. And he thinks we're the suckers who are going to hand it over. So understanding that kind of uh, very warranted wariness is important to understanding the part of the letter to Paul's friends that we just read together. The ancient world was filled, filled with wandering charlatans who wanted to uh, gain from peddling some new insights or uh, wisdom or magic or philosophy. And we don't know for sure if people were saying that kind of stuff about Paul, that he was like that after he made the quick exit that he did from Thessalonica, but it is a safe bet that people were thinking stuff like that about him. And in speaking directly to those things, Paul does a great deal more than defend the life that he had lived with his friends. He gives them a vision for how to live with one another. He is shaping a Christian imagination among them. He's showing them what it looks like to be a Christian. And, you know, perhaps it goes without saying, but please let me say it anyway. You and me, we can have our own imaginations shaped by this. We can learn or learn again what a Christian looks like. <laughs> so this is how Paul starts. He says, you know, you know that our, our coming to you was not in vain. They are like his witnesses to the fact that his coming wasn't in vain. And last week we, we talked about Paul using this letter to this young church to tell his friends that everything that they had experienced during their conversion to Christianity was in fact true. It was real. 
All of that stuff really happened. Their lives really changed. This new way of living that they were going about that probably honestly surprised them just about every day. That, that's really happening to them. It's really going down. God really, really does love them. The stuff that people are saying about them, the good things that, that people are saying about them all over Greece, that's all real. That stuff is real and it happened. And it's still happening. And he's doing that. He's reminding them and reinforcing that because he left Thessalonica quickly. A lot quicker uh, than he usually would have left a new church. Some people think he was only there for three weeks, others for a little bit longer. But it is clear that it was certainly less than a year than he was with them. And in that short time there, this small but very incredibly diverse group of people became the church there. Jewish folks and Greek folks who admired Judaism and everyday vanilla pagans and prominent people and wealthy people and poor people and the working class. This incredibly diverse cross-section of that city became the church. They became believers and as was often the case, um, opposition developed. And this, this kind of rent-a-mob was formed. <laughs> and that mob went to the city authorities of Thessalonica and said, Paul and these other Christians, they are acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're saying that there's another king and his name is Jesus. And that was, of course, uh, sedition in the Roman Empire. It was also very true. <laughs> that is indeed what they were saying and all of its implications with it. But in order to protect Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, this wealthy Christian named Jason paid off the city authorities. I don't know if it was like a bribe or a like bond or bail or something, but he paid them off. And it allowed Paul and the rest of the guys to leave quickly. You can read about all of this in Acts 17. And that context of opposition and that context of trouble is the context in which this little church is trying to grow in their faith. It wouldn't be hard, would it? You know, given all of that trouble, given the fact that their father in the faith is gone, the only people in the whole world that they knew were Christians have gone. It's not hard to imagine that they might wonder if all of it was real enough to be worth the trouble. It's not hard to imagine that they might just think on, in bad moments that it would just be easier to slip back into their old pagan life. It would certainly be a lot less trouble. So Paul just reminds them, this was real. This is real. It was real. You know, you know that our coming to you wasn't in vain. It wasn't some empty thing. You know it. And Paul reminded them what it was like for them when he first came, and now he talks about what it was like for him when he first came. Before they got to Thessalonica, they had been in Philippi, and as Paul writes in verse 2, in Philippi, Paul and those guys had suffered and been shamefully treated. That's in Acts 16. It's an incredible story. You should definitely read it this afternoon. Paul was beaten there. He was jailed there. And then with all of those physical scars, and I'm not... It's not a metaphor. <laughs> With all of those physical scars and all of that, those mental scars and all of that actual real trauma, 
Paul heads to Thessalonica, where despite all of that suffering and despite all of that trouble, he lathers and rinses and repeats, and he proclaims the good news of God again in the midst of great opposition. So it's very clear the point that Paul is making. You don't walk into suffering like that for something that isn't real. Nobody would do that. You don't get bruises on top of bruises for something that you don't believe in. Nobody would do that. That's clear enough. But underneath it, there's this other thing that the Christians are learning from Paul when they read this and when they look at his life. And that is that suffering does not mean that we have failed. Suffering does not mean that we have failed. Suffering does not mean that God has failed us. Suffering does not mean that we're disqualified. Suffering does not mean that we're counted out. Because in the scandalous ways of God in this world, the places in our lives where there is suffering and trouble are precisely the places in our lives where the glory and grace and power of God are most clearly seen. The places in our lives where there is suffering and where there is trouble carry the scent of Jesus' suffering for our lives and for the life of the world. And that means that suffering can and does exist alongside real, lasting, abiding joy in the Christian life. Suffering and joy abide together in the Christian life. And this is a feature of following Jesus. It is not a flaw. And I don't think... (laughs) that people like you and I can ever hear that enough. Maybe you need to hear it right now. All of us will need to hear it at some point in our life. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus. We can have joy and suffering together because Jesus has suffered with us and for us. So then in in, in verses 3 through 12, which is the rest of the passage, Paul reminds them, just of his character when he was with them, the stuff he did. And I I want us to take two passes at those verses. First, there's what Paul didn't do. It's it's like the inverse, like the perverse upside down, if you will, of the way that he was when he was with them. And it's clear that this is where he's aiming directly at any idea that he was at all like those traveling hucksters that they were so familiar with. When he and Sylvanus and Timothy came to town, they didn't come with error. They didn't come with impurity. They didn't come with any attempt to deceive them. They didn't come with flattery, Paul says in verse 5. They didn't come with any pretext for greed. They didn't seek any glory from them, not from them or from anybody else. They, they worked hard night and day, Paul says in verse 9, earning their own keep specifically, specifically so they would not be a burden to them. That's Paul's way of saying, you know, we didn't take any cash from you. We worked our day jobs so that you didn't have to worry about that. He's not telling them anything they didn't know. They knew all this stuff. He's just reinforcing their memory of their time together. You can hear that reinforcement throughout this part of the letter. You know, he says, and you yourselves know, and you remember, and you're our witnesses. Paul, he didn't act like any of those traveling clowns they were so familiar with. 
And I wish I could say that what was true of Paul in Thessalonica has always been true at all times in the long history of the church around the world. But I can't say that because you know and I know that it hasn't always been true and that it isn't true even now. It's been the source of great disillusionment, source of great cynicism, source of great pain for many, many people. That's why stuff like Sinclair Lewis' book, Elmer Gantry, and Charles Lawton's film, The Night of the Hunter, work, not because they seem like fantasy, but because they seem true. Con men, predators, charlatans have all long abused the church and her people. And that's why it's important to use texts like this one, like 1 Thessalonians 2, to fearlessly shine light into the places where it still occurs and call it out for what it is. Beware the false prophets Jesus taught us. who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. And they know what Paul was like. <laughs> they know he wasn't anything like that. They know how he was, but what they might not know, what those young Christians might not know is why Paul was that way and how he was the way he was with them. And that's what I want us to hear on the second pass through those verses. This is where Paul shapes their Christian imagination. This is where he teaches them what it looks like to be a Christian. This is where he shapes our Christian imagination too. This is where we see more deeply what it means to be Christian. And I think that verse 4 is an incredibly important starting point for this. If I had to say what's the heartbeat of this whole thing, it would probably be verse 4, which is where Paul says, when we came, we didn't speak to please men. We spoke to please God, who tests our hearts. He tests our hearts. Paul was not running a con when he came to Thessalonica, so he didn't so the, see those people as his hapless marks. As a matter of fact... What he's telling them is, you weren't actually even my first audience when I came to town. <laughs> That's what he's saying. My first audience when I came to town really wasn't you, it was God. The thing that mattered most to me is what, that God would see what I was doing, that he would hear what I'm saying, that he would see the motives in my heart. And church, I'm telling you, this is one of the most important things that people like you and me need to learn about how we carry out relationships as Christian people. It is only, it is only when our first audience is God that we are free to love other people without restraint. It is only and always when our first audience is God that we are free to love people without restraint. I mean, if we make other people our first audience, we are always going to be pulled out of shape by what they think about us or by what they don't think about us or what we want them to think about us or what we don't want them to think about us. That's what I mean by first audience. This is what I mean. If our, if our sense of meaning, if our sense of, of value, if our sense of, of worth 
our sense of justification, if our sense of belongingness in this world comes first from others' opinions to us or their reactions about us, we will be pulled in all kinds of different directions to get that stuff at any cost. We'll say stuff that isn't true. We'll, we'll bend and, and shape things that are true to make them sound better. We'll flatter and we'll overpromise and we'll pretend. And that isn't loving anybody. That's using them. But if our first audience is God, if our first audience is God, the God, the God church who has forever removed the unbearable burden of thinking that we belong to ourselves, he's removed it. The, the God who has removed the burden of thinking that we belong to ourselves and it's all up to us, if, if he's our first audience, if that God who has removed the unbearable burden of self-justification from us at the cross of Jesus, if that God is our first audience, the one who calls us daughter, the one who calls us son, if that God is our first audience, the one who promised us that through Jesus nothing will ever separate us from his love, nothing, that God, if that God is our first audience, the one who said, we are the sheep of his pasture. <laughs> We're the people of his hand. If that God is our first audience, then we don't need to use anybody for anything. And we will find, maybe for the very first time, that we're free to love others without restraint, like they were meant to be loved, and like we were meant to love them. And that's what it looks like to be a Christian. <laughs> Nobody gets that right the first time. <laughs> Nobody gets it right the thousandth time. I mean, you can think of uh, the most saintly, godly, righteous person that you know, and they will tell you, we don't ever get loving right on this side of glory. But that is absolutely, positively, certainly the direction that Jesus, by his spirit, is moving us. <laughs> he is making us to be those kinds of people. And our part in that is it's pretty small, but it's critical. Our part in that is to live our lives at all times as best as we are able, mindful of the gaze of God. This gaze that in Jesus is filled with love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and tenderness and strength. And you'll find this to be absolutely true. I promise you, you will find this to be true. A life lived under the gaze of God is a life that is freed up to love others in the way that you have been loved. It's true. Self-giving love. Like a mother nursing her child. We were gentle among you, Paul writes in verse 7, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves. This is deeply affecting language. This is deeply intimate language. You will not find anything quite like this anywhere else in Paul's letters. He is shaping Christian imagination. He is forming Christian imagination. He's showing us the depth and the beauty of the self-giving love that we have been made for and the depth and the beauty of the self-giving love that we have been made to give. And it rings so deeply true to us and it rings true to us precisely because that is how we have been loved by Jesus, with affectionate desire, ready to give his very life for us and with us. And we can grow, people like us, we can grow in loving like that because we have first been loved by God like that. Self-giving love. Like a father with his kids. <laughs> Paul says in verse 11, out there tirelessly exhorting, out there tirelessly encouraging them, not, not because kids just love that stuff and the rewards are super immediate and fulfilling because they don't and they're not. <laughs> but out there tirelessly like a dad because the results, however far away, however long, long off those results might be in the long game of faith because those results are worth it for those daughters and sons who are becoming women and men. As Paul puts it in verse 12, walking in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom calls you into his own glory to share his life. Paul is shaping Christian imagination. He is showing his friends and he's showing us what it looks like to love one another and he is showing us how by making our first audience the God who in Jesus graciously gives us all things. Let me pray for us. Father, the depth of your love for us is beyond our ability to even begin to, to scratch the surface of it. We have our metaphors and our stories. We have our ways of trying to, and we thank you for them. But we ask that you would pour your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we would be transformed by it. so that in ways mysterious to us, but not at all mysterious to the Spirit, we would become the people that we were made to be, people of self-giving love for the life of the world. Father, do this so that we can be people who grow up in our faith. <laughs> and do this so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.